Okay, so first episode of the Handover podcast from the University of Sunderland. My name's Ian Braithwaite. I'm a, I'm a registered adult nurse and I've got an E&E kind of background, medical education background. Um, for this first episode, I've been, I've been really lucky. I've got, some, I've got some fantastic guests for you to listen to today. So first, I'm just going to get Chris to introduce himself. Yeah, I'm Chris Davidson. I'm a senior lecturer here at the University of Sunderland. I'm the MNurse course. Uh, my background's in brain injury rehabilitation and... Uh, I was a dementia nurse specialist in my last clinical role before becoming a lecturer, so uh, it's really nice to join you and our soon-to-be-introduced guest as well. So what we have today is, is we're really lucky enough to have kind of advocate for the nursing profession here and former student here uh, and published author. So Sarah, would, would you like to just tell us a bit about you and your background and things? Certainly. My name's Sarah, um, Hepworth Dodds, double-barrelled, yes, very posh. I went to university when I was 19, lasted a year, got a full-time job, met the husband, got married, had two children, and then I went into a sort of corporate role, so project management, people management, and then in 2011 I took redundancy and emigrated to Australia with the family in tow, and we were there for about four years, and then when I came back I had a short-term contract managing, project managing people again, and it just didn't fit right the job in Australia was all about Aboriginals and the health and the well-being. And I'd always wanted to be a nurse. So I took the opportunity at the tender age of 37 to go back to college. I did a higher education diploma to get into the University of Sunderland where I did my nursing degree, which was fantastic. Great place. Everything's new. Unfortunately, in the March 2020, the pandemic hit and I was in my final year of study. And it just sent the world into turmoil. I'd already had a job in London um, in urgent care and cardiology. And the decision was made to return to London in August to join my husband and son who had been there through a football academy. However, the struggle started at the point when we went into lockdown and I had to really fight for that final placement to get back into the hospitals as a student and to qualify at the registered time in the August. And the university were amazing. And they did that for me and I ended up in a neurology ward, which is probably one of the most challenging wards apart from being in London itself. Um, but it set me in a great stead for, for the move to London. Qualified, passed everything, thank goodness. Got in a car on the Friday, drove all London, daughter and everything in tow. And I started my job on the Monday. And I started that um, down in, just on the outskirts of London, North London, in urgent care. And it was a challenge in itself. So is this between lockdowns just to kind of get so the time frame yeah so we've just come out of the first lockdown we're now able to move around a little bit so it's great you sort of get that false sense of security that it's over with i'm going to go down i'm going to have this fantastic job in london my family's going to be all back together again you know life it's going to be great it's going to be amazing a whole new career a whole new change of scenery um and then approximately three four weeks into the job in london the second lockdown starts to appear. You know, people are getting very poorly. The hospitals are overrun. And then just... And obviously staff are getting sick as well. So staff are getting there's sick. No, there's no staff. and Staff don't want to work in a COVID ward. And we were flipped into a high-dependency unit just basically based on the premise of where the oxygen tanks were based in the hospital. And we were given the opportunity to stay or go. 
So you can either stay in the COVID ward or you can go to a sister hospital and be nice and safe and clean and, you know, live your life happy. Personally, for me, it's one of those things that I wanted to be a nurse. I wanted to be there to help people and go through it. So I stayed within that unit and I stayed with my colleagues. At least 50, 60% of them chose reasons, you know, personal reasons, um, family reasons, and they chose not to stay there. So then the next nine, eight months was fighting through that second wave of COVID, which was probably the most challenging and exhausting period of my career. And then my son all of a sudden decides, I'm going to go to university in Glasgow. The daughter's all settled in London. She's got to start her university degree. My husband works there. I've got a job I love. But because of COVID, he's now remote working. And, you know, we just couldn't justify the cost of remaining in London and having mm. one daughter at university in London, one in Glasgow. So we chose to come back to Newcastle in the May of 2021. And I looked at jobs and I thought, oh, should I stick where I am, cardiology, a &E, or no? I'll tell you what I'll do. I'm going to go where I thought I was fitted best at that point, given me past experiences as people manager and project manager and actually reflecting back at that time on how staff were really, you know, struggled and needed the support and help. I took a role with our occupational health team back in Newcastle Trust. Oh, wow. That's a big change of clinical setting. It is. It was a big change, and I'm not going to lie. When I got back in there, you know, nine till five, Monday to Friday, grabbing a cup of coffee when I wanted to, you know, speaking to people healthily and taking a few bloods a day, having a clinic, it was a little bit soul-destroying to get back into that. The guilt. What? Why was it soul-destroying? Because just the guilt of knowing. I mean, everything was back to normal in London. Everyone was back in their normal wards and settings. But it was just the guilt of knowing that, how hard it is for people in the nation's capital, how hard it is for the nursing community and how overworked and understaffed that they are. And there was me sitting up in Newcastle, you know, running a clinic of maybe five or six blood and immunisations a day. And it took a few months to actually get into that and understand what my new job role as a nurse entailed and get the sort of satisfaction and the reward back from the patients, which are staff and contracts, mm. to be able to feel like I was making that difference. I find it interesting that you say that because when I made the trans and, the, and there's loads of sort of literature and stuff on this sort of thing, people who make a transition from being a nurse to being a lecturer, which are, or rather being a nurse lecturer, because I don't think you do make the transition from being a nurse to being a lecturer. I think nurse lecturer should just be a little sort of um, caveat on its own, really. But when at the peak of the pandemic, I likened my sort of role to like a world war one general sitting behind you know having my my nice coffee and my chesterfield armchair and books and stuff like and sending other people out to go and do the kind of the the hands-on work but actually looking back at it logically i'd been a lecturer for two years pre-pandemic so actually that that was my job and i did a lot of probably as you've done sort of soul searching from well, I could have been involved in this and thinking, oh, yes, I'm the sort of like the general behind the lines and stuff and changed my sort of opinion to actually, no, I'm not. I'm the drill sergeant. I'm the one who's there to stop you getting shot, basically, like to prepare you properly to become a, a nurse and work on the front lines. And obviously everyone at UOS and other universities that teach nursing 
hope that we can do that. And, and, and Ian does a cracking job of it as well. I started a new job just before the first lockdown. So I started here on the 16th of December, and I think we went into lockdown in middle of February, I think. Early March. It's something like March, that. Yeah, March, yeah, I think. But, March, but I had a bit of holiday, yeah. and then I came back, and then I wasn't allowed back. And I remember being in a few weeks and realising what was going on in practice. Some of my colleagues who I used to work with were texting and explaining how bad things were getting. And I remember being sat in the office. Me was going, we're not really going to go into a lockdown, are we, Ian? And I went, I think we are. And I think we'll be working from home in a few weeks. And they're like, no, you're completely overreacting, Ian. But I thought that as well, you know, when people were saying it. So I've got a nephew who's only got half a heart. My brother was beside himself. You know, how do I keep him safe? We're going to go on a lockdown. And I was like, don't be silly. A lockdown, that's something that, you know, we've seen on films and things like that. It doesn't happen to us as a, as a nation. It's surely not going to happen. But it did happen. Um, and I think that was the biggest culture, you know, change for me was this happened when I thought I was on that roller coaster of qualifying, getting the dream job moving for a new life in London and all of a sudden just one press conference and your life's at a standstill. It, you look back and it's it's, it's surreal to think that's it was, exactly it how was, it happened. It was very surreal. I mean, I like you, I felt very guilty. So mm-hmm. I, I have a bit of, um, and, I, and that really came out in your book. Um, that was something that I really identified with was because I came here and I suddenly felt like I was letting people down again. And you have that kind of like pang of... You definitely do. I've got skills and knowledge that I can use and I was literally thinking, I need to go back. And there was a really big part of me and a, a more senior member of the team sat me down and said, but you need to be here for the students who are here. And actually, when I sat and I reflected on it quite a lot, one of, one of the thoughts that I had was that I help more people now than I ever did on me one because medicine's a team sport, nursing's a team sport. And I'm, I give people knowledge and a bit of power to be better to look after the patients that they look after. And that's the th- kind of thing that I think Chris is trying to say as well. And well, you do have to learn You do have to learn that. It's really difficult though. So I can completely empathise with that, having to step back from that very frontline role to a less frontline role. But that's not doesn't mean it's not important. I think what sparked it off for me was I had to write, well, I say I had to write, but I did. every email requires a reply, and I had to write a reply saying to someone, how am I supposed to deal with this? People are just going into people's rooms with without PPE. This, this is pre-first lockdown, no PPE on, no one knows what to do, no one X, Y, and Z. And my reply was, this hasn't happened since before the NHS was created, like 1918 Spanish flu, no one knows wholesale what to do. We have a basic sort of public health response. And I think that as we've been sitting here talking, I think for everyone across the country, we're all probably going, was it was it lockdown one or was it lockdown two? I, I can't remember. Which You know, there's this like, I don't know if it's just collective denial or collective wanting to forget or collective kind of like, time shift or what but when I was reading and it was conscious of when I was reading your book that chapters one to three are mid-pandemic actually then then they're kind of post first lockdown uh, or or sort of mid first lockdown but it actually doesn't now this this does it I don't want to do it down by saying this but the narrative doesn't get worse until chapter four when when it's clear that everyone's done exactly as you've described and gone, oh, 
got through that emergency phase, got through the first lockdown. We all, we were all passionate and we all knew what we had to do. And, you know, we, we all stepped up and stuff. And then there was a kind of like, right, there might be a vaccine on the horizon. There, there might be, you know, we've figured out what social distancing is with X, Y, and Z. So exactly as you described, this sort of false, collective false sense of security it led to a, a worse second lo- lockdown, I think. And I think that's reflected very well in what you've written, to be honest. Most definitely. And I think the turning point for me was I had came back to Newcastle. I started in this new role and then I met up with some university friends, you know, catch up. It's been a year. Let's see how everyone's doing. It's actually been longer than that since we'd seen each other because of lockdown. And we start divulging in, you know, experiences and what we've been through. And these are my friends who are in the Newcastle hospitals and in South Tyneside hospitals. And I'm telling them my stories and, you know, they're shocked, they're flabbergasted, they can't believe the experiences I've been through. But for me, that was the norm at the time. You know, this is what I'd, this is what I'd been doing. Um, and jokingly, one said, you tell a great story, so why don't you write a book about it? I mean, that was going to be my kind of first question was, where did the idea for the book come from? So it came from a couple of cocktails in the Slug and Letters on the quayside in Newcastle, catching up with some uni friends. And I went away and I thought, I can write a book. Yeah. No, 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 definitely not. So, did, you, did you kind of bring, I, I don't know how much of your kind of reflective practice ended up coming into it. Did it? Did it not? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. The reflective practice in itself does come into it. Not in the, you know. not Because I used to, add diary. I, I use a lot of diaries. I yeah. don't know whether you do or not. No, I don't. I mean, fortunately, I've got very good. Well, I think I've got a good memory, but that'll be tested soon. Um, but um, no, so the reflective part of it does come into practice because you, you're able to then put things in order of play. So when I've re- wrote, which you very, very said, the first three chapters, well, actually the first two chapters were really difficult because all I wanted to do was forget about myself and just jump into those personal experiences I'd had. So it took about two, three weeks just to get those first two chapters on a bit of paper. And that was around about the end of August time. And then I sort of put it aside and thought, this is uh, a little bit too much hard work. This, this is maybe I can tell a good story, but writing ones are completely you know, it's alien to me. I don't know what where was I'm the, what from. was the hard bit. Was it the motivation? Was it the the structure? Oh, interesting. So, okay. what what do people want to know in them first few chapters? How can I engage people? How you know? How can I set the scene for this? That was the hardest thing. And then I wrote them and put them aside and just thought, one day I'll pick that back up. And then my two children go off to university. One back to London. The other one to Glasgow. Although I'm working nine to five, the the evenings are bare. You know, the house is immaculate, you can eat your dinner off the floors, and my husband's like, write your book. It's like, nah, nah. So it's, it, it, I just kind of get into it, it's just not right. And this went on for a few weeks, and then it got to the point where I thought, I'll try another chapter. And that night I wrote the third chapter, and, you know, my husband read it, and he was just like, it's amazing, you've got to write another one. And then for the next ten nights, I actually found myself writing three and a half to four and a half thousand words, and I plugged wow. away through that book within ten days because it got personal at that time. I was able to, you know, really put myself in the moment, and it just flowed so naturally because I was talking about me, the people I worked with, the patients I cared for, and every night I just came straight home, had something to eat, and I was just writing till eleven, twelve o'clock. Do you think it gave you perspective 
it did and it and it for me personally I thought by writing that it would give me that moment of oh my goodness what on earth have you been through and you haven't had that breakdown or moment of madness yet but it never did what it gave me was a sense of you know achievement and a, a sense of love for those people that I did actually care for and it did also give me a sense of you know as I was writing it was that the right decision we made at that time? You know, and I kept on, and that's a thing that still now, even when I read the book now, if I was reading it now, I always think, was that the right decision? Could I have done more? Should we have done more? I'm going to be honest, 12 years in, still have those debates now. We do. Um, Doesn't go away. No, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, as a nursing profession, you know, you've got to trust within yourself. You've got to think. Stop right now, Sarah. It was unprecedented times. Nobody really knew what they were doing. It was a hard time. Emotions were heightened. You know, you did what you did and you did it well. And I think that's what I wanted to get across in the book was that, you know, nurses do a fantastic job and we don't always get told how well or we don't have the time to reflect or the tools to reflect on actually how well we do manage our days. But also the book was there to inspire new nurses. You know, times will be hard. There will be days when you're ready to give up and think, why am I here? And that's even in your, your training years. I mean, I've stood in the sluice covered with a C. diff's patient, species all over us, thinking, just go back to project management. It's A, a better wage. B, you get more perks of the job. Monday to Friday, nine to five. But then you go back out and that patient is standing there. They're sorry for the mess that they've caused, but they're so happy and so grateful for everything that you're doing for them it just takes away you know the hardness of the job and that's and that to me is why I love being a nurse well I don't think your book pulls any punches either I mean I was thinking you know if you it's interesting it's interesting because when I was sort of 16 17 I had some friends who you know were all saying what career do we want to do what do we what's this what's that I went to a careers advisor, really wanted to be in the Navy, like, oh, family were in the Navy, that sort of thing. Military history, everything when I was a kid, hasn't really left me now. And the first thing they said is, do you have asthma? And I knew it was like, oh, right, okay. And that has ruled my life in some way. But I knew that I wanted to be in a uniform and helping people. And a few of my other friends, and, and... needless to say female friends at the time not to follow the stereotype but were going down the route of nursing we had a a brilliant and awe-inspiring sort of vice principal come in and go if you want to be a nurse you've got to deal with blood poo wee sick x y and z and at the tender age of 16 I went oh I don't want to do that and I actually had to wait and uh, for a bit more maturity to come along to decide that that was the right career decision and that sort of thing and I think it's important that people who are coming into nursing do do it at the right time and they are aware of some of the things that are going on in here. I have a, a friend who's in the is a, is a police officer and he's saying that people who are coming through now are actually surprised that they have to do night shifts. They're surprised that they have to learn breakaway techniques in case someone grabs hold of them or verbally abuses them and things like that. And I think it's like... It is important to emphasise that, like, those things will happen to you. That's not why you do the job, though. It's for you. You're in it for the for the outcome, not the income. Ultimately, you're you're doing something that is a vocation. It's a service to others, and I think that 
can be a hard sell at times if people if you're just saying trying to advise someone uh, what route they want to take because I think nursing is quite unique in that respect. It is, and I, and although I wanted like yourself wanted to be you know a nurse or a police officer, either or would have done when I left school. However, if I look back to myself at that age, I would not have the coping mechanisms and I don't think I would have had the commitment and drive and the empathy to be able to do the job that I have been doing the past few years I would don't even think I would have survived the training because it, it is it is grueling and it is tough at times but you've got to look at the bigger picture and the long haul the, the change that we make to people's lives as nurses is outweighs anything and until you can experience that feeling of satisfaction and gratitude from a patient or a family member or even just from a colleague you won't understand, you know, why we do the profession and what's for what's entailed. And like you say, it's some days, you know, it's the end of the road and you think, I can't carry on. An hour in the shift after handover, you can even have that feeling of doom and how am I going to get through this? But you do. You're right, and it is a feeling. It's not, this is probably one of the odd occasions where nurses actually sit around talking about that. We don't, it, we're usually making up some horrendous joke about something really, really bad that's just happened. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is a feeling, isn't it? And you, and there's, there's no reward like it, is there? Um, no, and I think, like you say, when we sit around and we talk about something that's just happened, I mean, how catastrophic it would be. We tend to take the you know the side of the patient or the family member. We don't take our own feelings into account, and if we do, it tends to be more of a jovial sort of sense of humour, opposed to well, actually, this is this is really going to affect me later down the line, or have we really just achieved that and done that? And I think that's a big thing that I take away from the book and doing the job now that I do, looking after you know a lot of medical and healthcare st- staff, is understanding what we do and why we do it and what the reward, rewards we get. Do, do you is. think that's helped with your job in kind of working with staff? Because obviously, you know, not your personal health type role is about dealing with staff who are really, really struggling. And do you think that that shared understanding has helped you in that role? Almost definitely. You, you can empathise with them. You can almost, you know, when those um, um, management referrals and self referrals come in and people are struggling and they are looking for a bit of guidance and help, you can o- automatically put yourself in their shoes and be able to say. I totally get where you're coming from. How can we resolve it together? Opposed to a black and white, oh, well, I'll just adjust you to have five to ten minutes extra breaks a day. It's not about that. It's about putting yourself in those shoes and being able to have that connection with the staff. And, you know, it reaps the same rewards and benefits as it does being on the front line because those people come back to you and you can see them thrive within the trust and they're your colleagues. You work with them day in and day out. So it's a massive reward what I do now, but in a different sense. Uh, clearly, there are some examples in this book of people who've tried to just enforce the rules. And I've said, you know, one of the notes I've made here is in dementia care, especially, and, and it would stretch to all care, I suppose, and, 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 and neurology. But it, it is a saying that I think emerges from dementia care is people say um, that there are a lot of rules that people think exist on a hospital ward. Uh, that actually are not written down there anywhere, they don't exist, there's no such thing, but people insist on enforcing them and it removes that kind of like your ability to deliver person-centeredness. I'm thinking of your, uh, you know, where your patient was initially having to hold hands through the window and then they're allowed to uh, sort of 
bring the family in to say goodbye to them and that that sort of thing. And you mentioned a bit about someone sort of enforcing the the rules then and, and, and that sort of thing. And I just wondered about that dynamic. The, the pandemic brought more rules, but I'd like to know how much humanity was lost alongside that. Had to, or you know, how much or how much were nurses able to push back against that? So there are rules, there are a lot of rules. Um, and with the pandemic coming in, there was even more rules enforced. You could almost say, like, really strict rules, almost police to the point where it was to the dotted line, you can't do this and you can't do that. And the book does talk about that. But you've also got to think, is your job role, you're there as an advocate for your patient and their families. And we're human at the end of the day. And you're in that situation where you can see someone who's taken the choice, you know, not to receive any further care, a family are outside the window, they're begging for some sort of help and support. You've got to then look at it as a big picture and you've got to be that advocate, a stronger advocate than you've ever been. Because although on that occasion it did work, the person who was in charge on that night said, yes, we will break the rules, we will do this. However, on other occasions... The staff would never have been that strong-willed enough to override or to do something about it. And there was a lot of people who, who did sadly pass with a hand through the window or with an iPad. And I think, for me, that's one of the, the biggest regrets that I have is that I couldn't have done any more shifts than I had done. But you know, when you just you have that sense of, I wish I could have done this for everybody. But then you feel sort of gratified that at least that person got that care. But everyone should have had it. And I think the scaremongering and the rules and regulations that were put in place throughout COVID created that sense of, I will police everything you do, say and look. And that wasn't just from, you know, nursing team, healthcare, it was everybody was on edge. I'm going to be responsible for this. And I think my past experience in life and, you know, the training and, what we've been enforced within the university of take ownership. If you're going to do something, you need to take ownership of it, take full responsibility of it. And on those occasions, I did. I knew that you know it could escalate, it could go further, probably lose me pin, hardly had it for a few months. But then you've got to look at the impact that it has on that patient and the staff as well. You know, when that family came in in that first instance, some of the staff were like, oh my goodness, Sarah, well done. This is an amazing achievement. Where other staff went, that is wrong. That is not hospital policy. You cannot do that. But they're people. We're human. Life should never be as hard as it has been the past two years. And I think people need to understand that. Is that, yes, we made decisions. We stood our ground. But life should never be this difficult. It should never be that black and white where you can say to somebody, sorry, but the window's going to have to be enough today. Because tomorrow, that, that, that rule will change. Is there anything that you particularly think that you, you kind of brought from from here in some in some respect and probably your placement experiences here during that lockdown, like in London? Most definitely the confidence. Um, fanta- fantastic tutors, you know, within within the trust, especially, you know, your clinical tutors, um, without any dropping any names, but, you know, the clinical tutors who do the face-to-face training with you, they bring so much experience and knowledge to the table that even when you're taking bloods from a dummy or you're doing your observations, your ABCD, you sort of live in their previous experience because it brings so much to the table to you and you think, I actually feel like I'm in that room doing it. So when you're put in that scenario situation, you know, you can think back and think, oh, actually, Claire said 
take a deep breath, step back one second, two seconds, not going to make that much of a difference, think what you're doing. And you actually do that, as corny as it sounds, in placement, you actually do that. I think that's really powerful, actually. I think, for me, I think the things I've learned in the last two and a half years about, about teaching is that experience mm-hmm. is actually the most valuable thing that you've got to give. So one of the really interesting things that came out of your book for me, and I, I really empathised, actually, was about your preceptorship. Yeah. I can't imagine that experience that you had, actually, because I have a very good preceptorship. And I don't know what your thoughts were about that. I, I, I saw stuff and I wanted to kind of take you for a coffee and have a chat with you. I read the book and I sat there and I went, that person needs to go and have a coffee with me and come and have a talk. It is. And I mean, the preceptorship went ahead. It did. Um, but because of the, the timing and where it was, it was more of a, a debrief. You know, I had nine sessions over the nine months and it was more of a debrief rather than a preceptorship. I mean, I can't imagine how running that worked because it must have been chaos. It was but done I, mainly on teams yeah. and out of hours. Did you find that really hard? No, because to be honest with you, at that point, I was so busy and so engrossed in everything that I was doing. The preceptorship sort of took a step back. You know, I was learning so much in the moment, in the time, that the preceptorship, you know, and it's fantastic, but it it is actually quite a lot of what we cover within the university about leadership and things like that. So I found myself, you know, on the days where I could do them, that, oh, I've been through this before. Do you think they've accidentally created the perfect preceptorship model? um, Because obviously... I mean, I was really encouraged that you got one. You know, yeah. No, and I know a lot of people who were in Newcastle, um, and so I was trying to say, who didn't get their preceptorship. Um, they did get no, nowhere near, you know, the level mm-hmm. of support from that. I mean, the level of support, I'm talking nine, three-hour sessions. I'm not talking someone sitting down with us every week. I had a fantastic team that I worked with on a daily basis. That did come, that did really come across. Your um, board team sounded really supportive and stuff. But having them there with you, sort of that preceptorship in those sessions, it just reinforced that, you know, what I was doing out there on the front line was actually worth it and working and that I was in a safe environment even though I still refer to working down there it's like working in a third world country because it's the the levels of staffing that we have the amenities there's none of this go in the clean room and drop your IVs you're literally your patient sat there holding the bottle of paracetamol as high as I can you know while you try and get it to drip through that line that is how it is there you draw them up on a patient table or anywhere that you can they don't have the facilities that we have were very spoiled. And used to call me the posh one in Newcastle, the posy flushes. I was I was gobsmacked. I didn't even think it was a real thing. Um, but yeah, so that side of it, without that team behind me, I don't think I would have come out of it as well as I did. Yes, I'm a strong-willed person. I've had fantastic training, but it also takes a team effort. Yeah, it does. It does, and that's really important. And like, it's a team sport, isn't it? It is. And unfortunately, within that unit now, there's actually only two people left who actually went through that experience. Really? People have went to different areas, left the NHS. Left completely? Completely, yeah. Does that surprise you? No. No? Not at all. Until you could be there in that moment, on that front line, and at the level that we're at, so from ward manager down, that's where the, the comfort was, that's where the support network was. Anything above that were sort of black and white, you know, in guidelines, you must do this, you must achieve that. It was a lower level. 
that had the support and guidance, anything that from there upwards just wasn't available. I think you've, I, I didn't want to mention it because it's a bit like elephant in the room, but it's almost reflective of the national uh, level of uh, involvement, isn't it? You know, we you've given quite a harrowing account in in some areas of this book. Some areas of it are glorious and are, are, are beautiful, you know, interactions with people and, and human beings. But we, you know... I hope within this collective national amnesia, uh, they're not expecting us to forget that at some point someone had to say goodbye to their mum on an iPad or say, or you know, sort of hold their hand through a window or something like that. I mean, and it's we're quite a way off the next election. I think it's twenty twenty four. So, how long does this forgetting? How forgetting how bad it was persist for? I'd be interested to. So know. I think for me, it's an important piece of social history. And for me, you know, that was one of the things when I published the book was it was already at that point in time where people were sort of saying, "Oh, it's past. Let's forget about that." But for me, it's not about forgetting. Like you say, it's about oh. those experiences that were hard. I watched the Jubilee. All of them, all the events of the Jubilee, uh, and I, I wouldn't say I'm a royalist, but I'm not sort of wanting to, you know, turn Buckingham Palace into a Weatherspoons uh, just yet. But I watched all of it, and the media were saying, "Forget, oh, this will help us forget. Oh, all the bad things we've been through, this will help us forget." And if you listen to that over and over and over again, how are you going to feel? You know, it's, it's. I think there are people who, who, as you say, this is a piece of of social history. This is the sort of thing that's going to help people full stop and then also help people to remember as well and, and to find uh, some some comfort in in a difficult situation uh, to know they're not alone, you know. In the feedback that I've had, so feedback, I get different levels of feedback. I get a lot of pictures of people crying, which is a bit overwhelming. Um, but the feedback that I get is from people who've experienced it, maybe not to that level, you know, in our own hospitals, they sort of, they relate to it, they relate to the rules and the regulations and that heartache and, the, you know, the iPads and, you know, visiting, being stopped and things like that. But then I also get families who have lost. So I speak in there about my own loss. My uncle's read the book and, you know, he relates to that so much because he was in the situation where they weren't allowed in until it was time, you know, to turn off that machine. They didn't have visiting or anything like that. And I think those stories in themselves are what people relate to and what they understand. So from people who have been through it, you know, it's a very much of I'm so happy that my loved one got so much love and care when they were, when they were in the NHS. Nurses who went through were using it as a debrief tool. But then you've got people who have never experienced loss, never been in the NHS, who actually are dumbfounded at the role and responsibilities that we've got. I think I had a conversation with a friend who's not clinical, never worked in a hospital, you know, has a job that has really no consequences for human beings, I guess. And he said, well, we're back to normal now. And I know from talking to colleagues and from my personal experiences that there is no going back to normal. Like, no, and it's and not what going is anywhere. Normal, yeah. what, what, you know, what do you mean by that? People haven't come back to life and people haven't not experienced what they've experienced. The, the, you can't put the genie back in the bottle after it's out, I think. And I think that was a hard thing for me to come to terms with in some respects. It took me a long time to get my head around that. But it was when someone said it, I went, what do you mean by that? And they got suddenly went, 
oh god, oh god, what have, have I said something to upset you? And it's like, no, 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 but I don't think there is a normal anymore. No, and what was like, and it's hard to imagine, you know, what the norm, classed as the normal was before the pandemic, and now people are just starting to not be normal, but just starting to live their lives again. But you've got those memories, you've got those experiences that's going to stay with us for generations and generations. It's going to, it's going to be, you know, one of those things that, like you say, goes down in history. Because that day, that first press conference of lockdown was like watching something off World War Z on a film. It was. It was bizarre. It was horrifying. It, it was weird because the response, because it wasn't like, shall we take up arms against it? It was, it was sort of, now we want you to sit around and watch... Uh, Tiger King and Order from Just Eat a lot, which I you can't see me listening to this, but I did, uh, <laughs> and you know that that it wasn't sort of like for anyone who's not frontline key workers, it was just kind of, in including uh, you know lecturers, it was just kind of like right, well, what do we have to do uh, in these challenging times? Stay in our house, and there's a I, I'd be really interested to know what the for people who's involved had a lesser degree of involvement, what they how they feel about that, because there's 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 got to be a spectrum, hasn't there? Because there are people whose involvement was I lost a loved one to COVID, to other people whose involvement was I I just repainted the living room. You know, like like there's there's a whole load of stories to accompany this one from different walks of life as well. And it's one of the things I, I noted down as, as, as interesting. Uh, in your book, you give the dates of when things happened. And it's one of those few books where I've actually been able to go, oh, well, what was I doing then? Um, you know, what, what I think I was moving up to Newcastle, uh, you know, from down south then, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I can actually track your experience with my experience. Me too. I and o- too. And other people can, can do do the same uh you know that anyone who's written an academic paper in 2019 has probably ripped it up now because they've had to (laughs) include the covid experience in it my years of working 2015 to 2018 in dementia care was all about open up the hospitals let carers onto the wards um you know dementia care should be free and it should and relatives should be able to come and go as they please and that was just followed by sort of ban right pandemic no one's allowed in you're not even allowed into a and e if you're not bleeding profusely without you, you know it was it was a total total not a culture change for me i hope your book encourages other people to be as honest and share experiences from that time as well because I think there are more stories out there. And I had a lot more stories I couldn't be put in there. And I, and I bet a lot of people then started to come and tell you their stories. And I think, I bet you that was quite, I bet that was actually quite moving and quite a shock. That would have been, that would have. It is. And even uh, one of my friends who was in the university, she was in the same ward and it got changed into a COVID war. But, and although she didn't have, you know, the restraints and, you know, the intensity that we had in London, she still had those experiences. She still had those moments of, 
what am I going to do? How am I going to do it? Is holding a hand enough? And as I refer to in the books, it's a non-Boris hug because patients needed that. They had no family. They had nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking about, you know, ripping off PPE and giving them a good old hug. They're getting a hug with someone who looks like an alien. I've got two sets of gloves on. I'm in full PPE, gown, goggles, glasses, hat, everything. These people aren't getting, you know, the sort of affection that they would normally have. Had a human contact, contact. Isn't it? and although I refer to them as non-Boris hugs, it's not in the case of that. It's that these people are getting actually quite like that term. A, a, a quite, plastic, like quite a plastic like hug, but it was enough for it's us. It's more the Holly Willoughby and uh, Philip Schofield hug, isn't it? Because they had a big sheet of PP that they, they do, but it, it was enough through. for people. It really mm. was, you know. And there was times, and I put my hand on my heart where I thought, if I just slipped off my gloves and just held that person's hand, they would feel so much better. But I've got a family to think about. I'm watching grown men like you guys here now begging and crawling, scraping at me, asking for me just to take one breath for them. And I think that's the reality of the situation Mm -hmm. is when you see people that you you can relate to in so much pain and suffering that you have to take those selfish notes of, actually, no, I won't take my glove off today. Or maybe I will keep just a little bit distance from you. But then in those emergency situations where, you know, you've just turned off and the, the buzzer goes and, yeah, you should be standing there, done and back on. But those minutes are life and death and you do as a nurse, you do jump into those situations and you have to put your, put your life in someone else's hands as well. And I've never, don't know, ask how, but I've never actually tested positive for COVID. Wow. PPE must be good and your hand washer must be spectacular. We're all touching the wooden table. We're all no, touching the wooden <laughs> I think it's just the tough Georgian is, but, you know, we'll, we'll see. I think, you know, that, and there were, it was sort of like those that made the news, wasn't it? So there was a lady who sort of like, well, I'm staying in my caravan on my front drive to avoid infecting my family, but therefore I haven't seen my family for six months. I'm living in the care home alongside my residents in order to not go home and take COVID home to my family and that sort of thing. And 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 but those sort sort of stories are the ones that were broadcast. Your story is the one that's happened to everybody else who's a nurse and what they don't and they might make the news but what they don't cover is that internal personal struggle of uh do I when do I engage? When do I disengage? When is it what's appropriate to to offer and not offer and that sort of thing? And that's neatly captured in your book as well. And I think that, you know, I'm doing you a disservice by saying the average nurse's experience. I, that's the wrong word to use. I'm trying to say that like, you know, you're you're all nurses in, in what you've said in here. I, I think that's I hope you take that as the compliment it's meant yeah, to be. because for me, <laughs> what the book's not about me. Obviously, it's about me, but it's not about me. It's about what we all experience and how we all go through it. Um, and I do think because I am a good, you know, storyteller, and I do, I am very hands-on, and I have two, you do have two senses as a nurse. You have that sense of, this is me, this is what I'm going to do today. This is going to be my smile. I'm going to put on and do that. But you've got those demons in the back of your head all the time saying, did I do that right? Was that the right dosage? Or did I give that the right... You have them constantly. It doesn't matter how good a nurse you are or how experienced you are. That is the two sides to nursing, that front face and then, you know, the demons behind. I was always told 
and this is for you know good tip for anyone wanting to become a nurse or is a nurse already, that if you stop having those feelings, it's time to look at a a new career, isn't it? Because if you stop worrying and you stop caring, I think that's when that's when you it's probably time to Most stop definitely. being a you're nurse. Not, you're, gone, you're not going to be delivering yeah. that care. If, if you have those feelings and a lot of people say I've been in this job for so many years I could do it with my eyes closed then you shouldn't be in that job because your eyes should always be open every single experience minute of the day is completely different from the previous in nursing yes you may look after the same patients you may be doing the same drug rounds same administration but every single person and every single day should be completely different from your last You, I think you'll never have the same shift twice and I was looking at the end at the very end of the book you know the last chapter um and you talk about a patient who you see the thing is I can picture these patients and I don't know about you like mm, you absolutely both. absolutely <laughs> um yeah I could identify with a lot of experiences that you had I could see myself in the same role in the same situation I think that's probably quite universal about most healthcare professionals who've read it I think probably most of us would have gone yeah, and a lot of people yeah, do say they relate to it, it but yeah. for me it's it's about having that relating to it but also knowing how well you've done within that situation I think that's the hard bit don't think that was the easy bit I think that was the hard bit sometimes it is but if you if you don't have that understanding realisation or have that time to be able to think about it and reflect then that's when, you know, the nursing profession becomes that hard place to work for a lot of people. And that's why they decide to, to leave. I think we're starting to wrap up now. Okay, so I, I've got one kind of little pointed question of, of, of what kind of advice you would give either yourself as a student nurse or some of our current student nurses. You know, what, what tips would you give them? What advice would you give them now knowing what you know? If you had said to us during the nursing course, um, pay attention in your lectures and really embrace, you know, your lectures experiences, I probably would have said, no way. They say this day in and day out, but actually when you're out there in practice, you're using those skills and experiences that you've been taught within university to get you through the day in those times. Just be patient with yourself. Mm-hmm. In the hard days come with the good days. Great one. I think I think that's something that I often say is, you know, the in nursing the lows are low, but the highs are high. And I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that's a fantastic, fantastic point to end on. So one thing I would say is if anyone's really interested in reading Sarah's book, it's called What a Year to Qualify. Um, it's available on Amazon. Um, that's where I got it from. I'll pack copy. Um, but, you know, it, it is worth a read. I think it is a, an interesting piece of social history about that and I don't think actually that many people have wrote books about this time in the hospital and I think that's quite unique about it and I think it's worth a read and a bit of understanding. Chris have you got anything else you'd like to bring in there? I think that you know it's this book is something that people are asking that now and even I found myself, it fills a gap for people like myself because as I said to you part of me the practical side wasn't there and I and I don't have your perspective and I don't have your experience. It does a wonderful thing for an author. It fills a gap in the market. So just be aware of that. Um, Thank you. But yeah, it's it's just um 
it's I think this is a, a bit of what people want to know. What it what is it like for nurses still now? What was it like for nurses then? And especially at the peak of confusion, which I feel was sort of locked down too. Um and uh you've uh, you've accomplished uh what you set out to do, I think. Thank you. Thank you. I think it's a great podcast. I think so this is the first episode of this one that I've done. So it's called The Handover. Um, if any of you guys out there, students particularly, are interested in participating in the future, just give me a shout, drop me an email, and we'll arrange something for future episodes. And I really appreciate that you've come to talk to us today. So well, I really thank appreciate you, so much. you listening to everything I've got to say. Fantastic. Thank you.